great Odin's raven. It's crazy. It's crazy. It's crazy. This is, this is ridiculous. Okay, I'll go. I'll go. I'll go. I'll go. I'll go. I'll go. Let's get this roundtable started and talk about the work of Michael Haneke. We're joined by our contributor, Todd Wilcox. How are you doing, Todd? Good. How are you? Doing great. So Good. let's just get it started. Um, All right. the, the reason for that we decided to do this roundtable is because we found out that you were a huge fan of director Michael Haneke. And Kevin and I, at the time, were... Uh, let's just say not too into his work. <laughs> let's just say not. Yeah. Now, when we started this little project, uh, I believe that Kevin and I only saw Das Weissabond, The White Ribbon, and Funny Games. Am I correct? Yes. And you didn't... 97 Funny Games. Uh, yeah, you didn't the see American. the remake. No, and I never will. Okay. Well, I saw... Uh, at the time... I saw Das Weissabond and both honey ga- funny games, honey games. So, <laughs> and now we're going to refer to funny games as honey games. Honey games. <laughs> uh, since then, uh, I've watched five more, and Kevin, you watched five more as well. Yes. So, well, I, and I rewatched Das Weissabond. I, I did as well. Yes. So, and Todd, you saw everything that he did so i've seen it, I mean, not his tv movies but not the tv uh, movies all of his features okay so uh, but it's been a while since like the first one the seventh continent and okay i didn't even i didn't you, see that so one, you haven't so. seen sper mule what is it oh sper mule yeah from 76 i have not seen TV that either movie. so uh, i think for the purposes of this, we'll just be kind of highlighting what we like the most and the least about this director. So let's start off by talking about maybe some of his more popular works. Maybe we can start with Das Weissabond, The White Ribbon, which came out in 2009. Mm-hmm. And Kevin, I know that you initially hated this movie, correct? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but I do I do have to be I mean when I was see when I saw it first time around I don't know if I was really in the mood to see this movie to begin with so about 10 minutes in I was just I was sitting on the couch I remember it playing his dance and I just it's at like the 10 minute mark I was just like nope uh uh-uh. uh this, this is not happening today sorry did you make it through the whole way no, I stopped it. Mm. I was like, "Fuck this movie!" Oh, rough. And yeah. and Todd, this is your one of your favorite movies of all time, right? Uh, it it's actually because I just rewatched. I don't know if it's supposed to pronounce it cachet or we we were actually talking about this cache, before the like show. The computer, right? We're not sure. Hidden, we'll call it hidden. Yeah. Uh, I I actually rewatched both of them overnight and i think cachet has gone ahead of the white ribbon for me now but okay there we go yeah i I like them both very much now what's your because i rewatched white ribbon and i also watched uh hidden and 
Uh, Kevin, you loved Hidden. I was a little bit more lukewarm about it just because mostly for the ending and how I feel like generally Haneke loves taking a shit all over the audience and that tends to bother me with this director. And upon a rewatch, you liked the White Ribbon more, correct? Who, me? Yes. Yes, I would... I, um, I think my two highest rated is probably like Todd said. Cachet for me was a 10 out of 10. And the White Ribbon on, upon rewatch was definitely the second highest rated of his films that I enjoyed. Now, I'm curious because uh, after rewatching the White Ribbon, I didn't like it any more than when I saw it initially. And Well, I'm remember, one- I made it 10 minutes the first go around. <laughs> so. <laughs> and I'm wondering what... Kevin, I could probably surmise that the main reason that you like the White Ribbon, at least liked it more the second time around, was the cinematography. Am yes. I correct on that? It is Cinema- a beautiful looking film. I'll give Cinema- you that. Cinematography is amazing. Not only, I mean, right off the bat, it's black and white, which looks amazing, but the way uh, the scenes that he does at night with by like the firelight and stuff was fantastic and some of the way that he would frame his shots when uh the the husband goes into where they have like her his uh his wife laid out before they bury her and how the wall is like halfway in the shot and he sits and he's obstructed by the wall just the way that they framed that shot i thought was fantastic but yeah for the most part the white ribbon is because of the cinematography and pretty much all the camera work it was a little long i'll give you that definitely long it is over two hours long so why don't you tell us what um you liked so much about the white ribbon todd i like i I kind of like the fact that haneke does what you say where he he leaves the audience just pounding their head against the nearest blunt object at the end of his films i don't know why i'm just partial to that yeah. So you're sort but, of masochistic? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but the White Ribbon, first of all, is beautiful. It's just absolutely a pleasure to watch that film. And, you know, he says it's about terrorism. And uh, I, I, I didn't watch it thinking about any political implications to it. I just watched it as sort of this very strange mystery, kind of like, cachet was sort of like a a whodunit where we don't find out who did it (laughs) exactly and (laughs) i I, what happens with all of his films (laughs) which is what i surmised adam you didn't like about it (laughs) about white ribbon no i did not i didn't like that now i i don't want to i don't want anybody to think that i'm someone who doesn't like open-ended endings or anything like that i like ambiguous endings but uh, for the most part, watching most of Haneke's films, I get the uh, feeling that he was trying to pull the wool over our eyes and then at the end of the movie say, ha, fuck you. You know, like, I feel like most of his movies are a critique on the viewers themselves. And I find that to be frustrating. Well, that is frustrating, but that's kind of what makes it interesting for yeah i mean and i think that 
there's with his movies there's definitely two viewpoints two pretty concise viewpoints i mean his movies are not concise whatsoever and that's another criticism i have on a lot of his movies but like you said there's some people that like yourself that love that and i'm all for ambiguity but i don't like it when i feel do you feel does it feel manipulated or does it feel like uh, it's intentionally just I, I, the unconventional and uh for the most part i feel like he does manipulate the audience yeah i, I do I, I now i have to say that like i think any everyone will agree that he his movies are very ambiguous but that's one of the things that i have to say he's really good at is that he keeps it so open-ended that um, every single person that watches his movies has a different viewpoint and has a different theory about what it's about. And if his movies do let you sort of, you end up thinking about them more than the actual time that you spend watching them. So I have to give him respect for that, that he is really good in that aspect. And I do sort of like that about his films, is that it's like, it's a lot like real life where things just aren't cut and dry. Yeah, and I, and I can definitely respect that. Um, I wanted to read this uh, since we're still kind of on the topic of the White Ribbon and just uh, Haneke's style. This is uh, an excerpt from an article from the Moving Arts Journal. This is written by Jesse Cataldo, and I think that this kind of sums up how I feel about Haneke. Um, it says... The White Ribbon, like so many of Haneke's films, remains borderline objectionable, not because of its dark outlook, but because it feels ethically rotten, despite the highly moral lessons it seems eager to teach. Like the children of the film, Haneke gets our attention by picking on the weak and the innocent, exploiting their near-sacred status uh, to heighten feelings of danger and anxiety. Although cheap, this has proven to be a common tactic for the director. Much has been made of his uh, schoolmaster presentation, the way he chastises his audience for perceived wrongs. Yet whatever the intent, his movies could not exist without violence. They employ it freely while damning its use, creating a kind of double standard where bearing witness is deemed unacceptable for some purposes, crystallized by rewind scene in 1997's funny games where the audience is reprimanded for cheering the murder of an antagonist but acceptable as a finger wagging attention grabbing device now i do have to say one of the main things that i disagree with what that guy had to say is um that's life like that shit happens every day the stuff that happens in the white ribbon where we have you know people walking around and then we have violence right next to it even perpetrated by the people that are trying to tell us how to behave so i don't really understand what that guy's trying to say Uh, i think i look at it less specifically with the white ribbon and more about a lot of his films in general like especially funny games like they mentioned and, and benny's video as well like we said uh, off air before we started, uh, you know, Benny's video is sort of about this kid who is obsessed with videos and watching this specific video of this pig being murdered or slaughtered. And 
we see that in the movie over and over and over. And I feel like, you know, Haneke's commentary on it is something that, like they said in the article, it's it's finger wagging to the audience, but at the same time, it's just it's falling victim to it itself. But would it be impossible to wag the finger about violence without showing the violence? I mean, but also at the same time, he could not. It, maybe it's not a finger wagging. I don't. I don't know if he's ever come out and said that that's what he's doing in these situations. But maybe he's just thrown that in there hoping that people will be outraged and that he can be sort of vindicated. Like, yes, there are people out there that still are outraged by this. And I, and I think that with funny games as an example, that was definitely what he was going for with the end of funny games. It was punishing the audience for en- yeah, I I guess that one. enjoying. I agree with that as well the violence. I think that that's definitely, and I mean the, the, with a lot of his films, we, we see overarching themes, you know what I mean? Like a lot of his movies are criticisms of media and communications, the TV and video and that type of thing. And I don't have uh, necessarily any kind of issues with that. It was just an observation. Yeah. But I I think I would agree that, as a society, I mean, I don't know how it is in other countries, but we are sort of bloodthirsty, and it is a little sickening. And not only with like the fact that we're bloodthirsty, but just some of the other stuff that we're really into. Like, there's competitive eating for Christ's sake. <laughs> are you fucking kidding me? There's shows where there's a guy like, I'm gonna eat this 60 pound burger. People fucking watch that shit. Well, I think uh, I think that's true, but I think that uh, as human beings, we all have a certain amount of bloodlust in us. I mean, who doesn't like watching violent movies? I love it. I don't think that I should be punished for enjoying horror movies or movies that are violent in any way. You know, it's not going to make me go out and kill somebody, and I, I find it to be somewhat frustrating that I'm being criticized for that. Assuming that that's what he's doing. I've read some things that he's written that suggest that that is what he's doing, but I don't know. When, you, when you're when you watching it and you're in the middle of it, it doesn't, it doesn't feel that way to me. It never felt, I never felt like I was being preached to. Uh, no, uh, and I think that usually the, the parts that really make you think or frustrate you or make you love what you just saw, I think that... With nearly all of his films, it comes down to the end, the end of the film. And that's that's when shit gets real. You know, you look at uh, Cachet, the end, the, no, the entire of the end of Cachet, the entire movie up until the end was pretty much a straightforward thriller, like a mystery. You didn't know really what was going on. And the, the big question that was plaguing you throughout the film was, you know, who's doing this? Who's behind this? And at the end, that's when the big reveal happens that we're not going to see who did it. And in fact, we have to draw our own conclusions about what that was. So who sent him? What are our thoughts on Cache? Because that seems like that's a big thing that people are trying to figure out. I like, I like your theory, Kevin. 
I like my theory too, mostly because I came up with it. But <laughs> my, to me, my theory is the only one that makes sense. So Kevin's theory is at the end of Cache. Okay, let's let's just recap the plot of the movie real quick, just for people that maybe haven't seen it. And we are going to spoil the hell out of the end. So oh, we spoil the shit out of everything. <laughs> yeah, it's our job. So this film is about a couple who continuously receive these strange VHS tapes that consist of hidden camera footage of either their house or sometimes other locations. And they're just trying to figure out, and there's always these weird drawings on them too. And they're trying to figure out who's sending them. That's the short version. Kevin's theory of the end is that it's we, the viewer that are sending these, tapes to this couple now do you think that that could be a plausible uh explanation todd i do i read uh as i was up all night as i sons of bitches there's someone else out there often am yeah uh i was reading this i got into this site that was just one comment after another it was sort of a blog about the movie and um, a lot of people had the impression that the audience was essentially Haneke's implicit voyeur that had been doing this all along. Some thought it was their son. Implausible. Uh, <laughs> Pero, um, or however you're supposed to say his name, Pero. Or, yeah. Pero. I, because of that ending where Majid's son and their son have that conversation on the steps. Yes, at, at the very end, right? At the very, very end, yeah. Which and, I didn't even see. I didn't even notice it when that happened. <laughs> Kevin told me about that. And that, and you get the sense that that's being filmed. So, who is filming that? Because that looks like that's being that looks like a shot. That looks like a hidden camera shot. I guess I could see how the sun would be, but I don't know what his motivations would be. And it seems to make more sense. Uh, given the content of the rest of the film, that it would be the viewer that I, I is think the to one. me that the, at the end it is that is a hit like Todd said it's a hidden camera shot. I think that the Haneke in that in cachet is sort of it's another sort of finger wagging where he wants us to take responsibility for what happens to Majid, and even after Majid is taken out of the picture we scramble to try and blame someone else instead of just saying okay yeah we're the ones that did this and i think that's why he shows them at the end that all of us will just go oh it was those two so we the audience are again being yeah. chastised yes because <laughs> yeah exactly because what well the, we're the part thing that, of, we're yes. a party to it basically yeah i think we're responsible for it but like a lot of times in real life, people don't take responsibility for the small actions that they have in someone else's life that, you know, forces them to do terrible things. We just sort of blame it on someone else. Well, let's talk about let's talk about real life for a second. Oh, shit. We're a philosophy show. The thing about Haneke's films is that I don't find them to be realistic. I don't find them to... Although they may be some sort of reflection on real life, I, don't, I find that the characters in the films are never realistic. I think that no one 
almost no one in any of the films that I saw acts like uh, a real person in a in a situation in whatever situation they may may be in, and I and I find that that's kind of one of the big issues I have with a lot of his films is that. I hate all the characters and they mean nothing to me and I don't want them to succeed and I don't want to watch them because I hate them. I hate their face. I hate the way they talk. I hate the way they walk. I hate everything about them. And, and I'm, I'm joking, but I, I sort of do agree that I find a lot of the characters to be sort of um, unrealistic and sort of caricatures and... Like you said, I just I don't latch on to any of them. I don't relate to any of them, and I don't care what happens to them. They're just all terrible people, really. And I don't think that it's like that across the board. I think uh, maybe some of the characters in Code Unknown were um, at least somewhat likable. Yeah, anytime Beno shows up, she's always she's, likable. Yeah, she's yeah. always likable. Yes, she yeah. is, she is always a likable character. Now, Todd, do you like the people in Haneke's movies, or do you hate their faces? Uh, it it depends. I mean, I I wanted to, uh, I, I wanted to absolutely murder Isabel Hubert's character in the Piano Teacher. Oh my god, no. I hate it. <laughs> she was a real piece of work, but. It's not and the mom too, Jesus. And the mom was great, and their relationship was one of the wondrous things. Not since Carrie had you seen such a messed up mom and daughter. Yes, <laughs> very strange. <laughs> That's what it reminded me of. But you know, it's almost as if he's not—he's not even attempting to be realistic. Um, they're they're more either caricatures. They're they're sort of ultra extremes of certain characteristics that are realistic but they're, they're the extreme version of them and and they're maybe even allegorical rather than realistic they're they're examples of for example who bears character is an example of a sadomasochistic person she's very she's the definition of that isn't she she's just yeah and yeah. i would i would uh, agree with you completely and on that note uh, I, I want to bring up another thing that I, I draw some serious issues with in Haneke's films, and that's of the uh, frequency with which he decides to murder animals in his films. <laughs> and uh, it, it's interesting because we're gearing up to do our next roundtable, which will be David Cronenberg. And I've been watching some interviews with him, and, and one of the interviews that he gives he talks about directors that decide to kill animals in their films. And he said, it's a fictional film. It's not real life. So there's no reason to do that in a movie, in a fictional movie. If you're shooting a documentary that takes place in a slaughterhouse, yeah, you're going to see some animal death. But I find that there's no reason. And in... Almost every single one of his movies, there's at least one animal being killed on on camera. And I find that to be unnecessary. And I don't I don't really know why you would do that other than to to shock. It's a lot like he's almost to the point where and I found this over. You know, I've watched all of these within like two weeks. 
And he's almost like, you know how a Hitchcock movie, you wait for, like, you watch for Hitchcock to show up and make his cameo? Yeah. And so, Haneke, you're just like, when are they going to kill the animal? What animal are they going to kill? Oh, there's a bird. Are they going to kill it? And you just wait for it. Yeah. I, I find it to be almost counterproductive to most of his films. Like, um, for instance, in, um, in Time of the Wolf, we see a pretty horrendous scene with a horse being shot uh, and then stabbed in the throat. And it, it had nothing to do with the film. It, it, like, it was completely unnecessary. And I didn't, I just didn't understand it. <laughs> I'm not sure what, what he's doing unless he's just showing another, he's showing more, viol- showing more violence and to even, and even more innocent. In Funny Games, he kills the dog. Yeah, or seventh, the dog, but the dog maybe did. Well, I hope he didn't kill the dog in real life in Funny Games. No. I do have a theory that he starts every day shooting by killing a dog. He might not film it, but he does kill an animal before he starts his day. <laughs> I, I just imagine on set, you're right. That's they're get, they're getting ready to shoot day one of his next movie. He pulls out this giant uh, Wheel of Fortune style wheel and spins it. And it has pictures of animals. Whatever it lands on, he decides to slaughter that animal. Now, the only thing that I can think of is that he throws in the killing of an animal just just to sort of somewhat get a rise out of people. But at the same time, trying to open people's eyes to, like, animals are killed every day, all the time, slaughtered, and no one has a problem with it. But you show an animal get its throat slit in a movie, and people are like, "Oh my God, what are you doing?" <laughs> maybe, maybe he does it to wake us up because uh, we've already been sitting through an hour and a half of nothing. <laughs> oh, it's that's possible, but it's also possible that and anything is no one is nothing, and no one is sacred or safe either. And maybe that's it. Maybe that's just yeah, that's it. Maybe good, maybe he's. Good criticizing the animals as well and sticking it to them and the only reason that he hasn't killed people in real life is just because he legally can't <laughs> we I mean, still haven't seen a more uh there are old people oh that's it, that's right so they could be euthanized that is I don't true no i mean it, most of his films have such a, a nihilistic tone to them i feel well, like yeah he's all they're shame. all they're all very Which bleak. I know, that's a generalization i shouldn't say that what did you but say he, i said he's austrian but that's a generalization <laughs> but it does he does have sort of like a, a nietzsche-esque outlook on life it seems like and that's one of the things about him that i sort of got after watching the seven of these films is he seems like he's a philosopher that can't write so he works out all of his problems or trying to deal with society by making films. And it's just sort of him trying to deal with his own shit. And then we just go and watch it. I think he hates everyone. <laughs> I think that he has a general distaste for everyone. And the interesting thing is a lot of these uh, statements that he makes regarding people and society 
the people that should that that he should really be targeting are never going to see any of his films. You know? Yeah, it's true. That's true. And I I think I find that to be interesting, but I, I also I believe that if if he could just make movies for himself and not have to show anyone, he would be just ha- just as happy doing that because I think he really hates the viewer. But I think he also wants to see how the the viewer reacts. I think, like I said earlier, I think in some instances he's vindicated by people that are sort of outraged by things. And then I think he's probably depressed by other people that are like, yeah, that was awesome when he slit that horse's throat. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Apparently he does. I have, I'm a subscriber to Film Comment magazine, which is amazing. And I have an issue where they have this cover story with Isabelle Huppert. And she talks about working with Haneke, and she says that Michael does hate everything sentimental. Hmm. And so does she, apparently. <laughs> yeah, so does she. Well, it's interesting. Cause well, she says, she says in the interview, so do I. Well, <laughs> when, when I saw the trailers for Amore, that feels like a sentimental film to me. But maybe the trailers are deceiving. I don't know. When you read it about it, about these two, this couple in their 80s and the daughter returns and then something happens. We don't know exactly what. There's some sort of catalyst, as there usually is, that seems to be, it's still, it's apparently disturbing, whatever it is. I haven't quite figured out what happens because mm, I, sure. I don't want to read too much about it. But uh, So just they to probably murder the family dog. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> probably an animal. <laughs> crucified or something in the back <laughs> yeah, by the 80 year old couple <laughs> who are once again named George and Anne like every other couple in his film. yes he does he always use uh, what is it George Laurent George and Anne George uh, at and least Anne. three funny games and cachet and more both all three use George and I Anne. think time of the time of the wolf was even it was Anna and I think it was George. I think you're right. I think it was. Uh, well, maybe it was too. Time of the Wolf has been a long time ago for me. So. And I, yeah, it was the same thing in the Seventh Continent. Maybe he just hates his parents. Or his parents' name, Ann and George? Mm. Oh, <laughs> he man. Probably has, he probably has mommy and daddy issues. Oh, boy. Get into the only one is Freudian the, shit here. The only one is The Piano Teacher, but that was based on a novel. Which, we didn't get to that. That may be fucking awful. It's. I find it interesting that you hate. Is that your I, most hated one? I fucking hated it with a passion. Because I didn't. I didn't mind the piano teacher. I didn't love it. But how, Todd, how did you feel about the piano teacher? It's a very. It's a very. It, it certainly puts you at a distance. I think that was the first Haneke film I saw, actually, and. I was. It reminded me of um, Lars von Trier's work. Mm. Hard to watch, but simultaneously, kind of car wreck. Hard to watch, like you, kind of craning your neck to see what other horrible thing is going to happen in the next scene. But I'm a big fan of Isabelle Hubert, so same here. Same I, and I thought I thought she was her and uh, the mother were the only redeeming um, qualities in this movie, but and the only reason I didn't rate this any higher 
because normally I would, given her performance. But mm-hmm. I know that for me, I know that Haneke really didn't pull that out of her because she does it all the time. Yeah, she she's does. almost amazing in every movie she's in. She's great in everything. But I, I, I watched it I, I, first for her. That's how I came to Haneke was because it was another Hubert performance, and so I watched it. And then I was, I thought, wow, this is really hard to watch, and this is disturbing, and this is sort of. And then I started watching more of his films and thought, oh God, they're all like this. <laughs> uh, but, but, um, but I, it, again, it reminds me of, of Von Trier in the sense that although he's much more surrealistic and kind of even harder to watch sometimes, but not that we're doing a roundtable on him. But not yet. When we, get, I, when we get to him, let's, I'd love to be a part of that one. But, uh, I You're mean, in. I don't think we have anyone else. <laughs> no, not, not right now. All, yeah. all of his work as well. And they both are, I mean, they're both auteurs, and they both give the same kind of feeling of either just, dis, you know, despising that the, what you've just seen or being kind of mesmerized by what you've just seen and um i I mean i can't put a lot of blame on haneke for the piano teacher because it is a jelinek novel and so the story isn't his but i've noticed from what adam told me about dashlash which is kafka's the castle i just wanted to say that uh where he pretty much told me that absolutely nothing happens and there's nothing spectacular at all, which no, is the same that, thing. That's the point. That's what uh, that's what every Kafka novel is. Yeah, exactly. But the the thing that I had a problem with with the piano teacher, like I said, I couldn't slight Haneke for the story aspect of it because it's not his story. But I just didn't feel like he brought anything to it. There was no cinematography. Everything was just very bland, and it was. I felt like I watched, I read Jelinek's novel. And recorded it, and then two years later, I was like, "Oh, let me watch myself read that book that one time." <laughs> let's just let's just be honest, Kevin. It was the peeing on the ground scene that that turned you off of it. <laughs> no, I didn't. I didn't. I didn't have a problem with it in the Man Who Fell to Earth. So I'm not going to have a problem with it in the Piano Teacher. Even in the Man Who Fell to the Earth, it was much more comical. Um, I yeah, I I didn't really have any kind of big complaints. About the piano teacher, that was uh, probably one of the most tolerable of his films that that I watched. But I, I would like to go in now because we talked about what our favorites were. What are our least favorites? Okay, so my least favorites uh, would be the castle, uh, only for the fact that it was nearly impossible. <laughs> to get through. H- have you seen this one, Todd? Yeah, I have. Oh my god. <laughs> I mean, I get the point. I mean, nothing happens for 2 hours. The the, the point and and I've realized like that that is the point. I mean, they make it evident throughout the movie that it's just, you know, this guy that's trying to deal with this ridiculous situation and the bureaucracy the bureaucracy that comes along mm-hmm. with this supposed job that he has and it but oh my lord it's just 
nothing happens and the, and like we said before the characters are just cartoons i mean they it's just, they act so ridiculous and uh so that that would probably be one of my least favorites but i also hated funny games and the remake pretty significantly well mine is obviously the piano teacher <laughs> uh for everything that i mentioned before but also just like you said, I, or we talked about this before recording, is I think that he could just be a little more concise. I don't think movies have to be over two hours long where you just show a static shot of nothing and then followed up with a static shot of nothing and then huh. followed up with another static shot of nothing. Like you're not moving the story along at all. You're just showing me things that mean nothing. Just get on with it. Like, I understand. She's sadomasochistic. I get it. Get on with it. I don't know how... I mean, the character development goes on forever, but the characters feel like they're like one-note characters, and we're spending like an hour and 15 minutes developing this one note where we developed it in the first like 20 minutes. Yeah. It it does get kind of trite. Um, Yeah, I will... Good word for it, I think. Uh, I'll I'll be honest. I didn't love any of his movies, so this is like my most hated versus my least hated. You know <laughs> that that's how it goes in my ranking, most to least. And um, but would would I didn't we didn't get to what is Todd's yeah, least favorite? That's what so I was the going. big uh, fan. The big fan of Panicky <laughs> was the I, least I, favorite. Uh, probably. Uh, the one that, the one that I don't even barely remember, which is Time of the Wolf. Um, and there's just nothing memorable about it to me. I I don't. I should have tried to rewatch it again because I don't remember anything from it. Um, basically, with it's the post-apocalyptic right, right yeah one and and they kill a horse. That's and they kill a horse and a goat in that one. That was a twofer. That's a twofer. That was a twofer. And and if I remember correctly, there is uh, at least one scene with uh, full frontal child nudity that is pretty disturbing. There's child nudity. There's a rape. Yeah. Um, Oh, okay. Parts of it are coming back now. I think I read a quote in a review that said only Haneke could make the end of the world so boring. (laughs) <laughs> the only thing that I do, one of the main reasons that I somewhat liked Time of the Wolf, even though again it was a little long, and by a little I mean a lot. <laughs> and the only thing that I thought was somewhat interested about it is that made me think about it was that it was post-apocalyptic, but at the same time, their society that they came up with mirrors the society that we have. Yeah where we're supposed to be civilized, but it's exactly the same. Yeah. I mean, I, I didn't hate that one either. Um, I always have a soft spot for post-apocalyptic films, unless you want to count uh, 444 Last Day on Earth. If that's we're considered... seeking a friend for the end of the world. If that's considered post-apocalyptic, I guess that's, uh, that's uh, very... Pre- Pre, pre 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 end of the world yeah uh either way i there were a few things about time of the wolf that i did enjoy i felt that the 
the symbolism, maybe the subtext of the film was a little bit more evident, I guess. Like you kind of knew what you were seeing and at least I did. I, I thought that I did. I didn't think that there was so many hidden messages in that one. Oh, like there are in White Ribbon and... And most of his other films, I find. Yeah. All of them. I I just didn't remember... I just don't remember much of Time of the Wolf. Uh, So, but but see, I like all of them. So it's sort of like... For me, it's which one sticks with me the most. Funny Games, I I saw the uh, original Austrian first and then watched the American... Why he remade it, I have no idea. Shot for shot. I, I hate when directors do that. Why? Who's, I don't understand why he would even do that. Um, who's the other uh Sluzer did The Vanishing. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He, oh, why? Why? Well, the worst part about The Vanishing was that it was a really bad remake as well. Yeah. I mean, at least with Funny Games, it was pretty much... Well, it was the exact same, and they got good actors to play in the roles. And um, I, I like Cachet. I was really into Funny Games up until the Rewind. Yeah, me too. And I, I hate <laughs> Rewind. I've talked about it. I don't know how many times. I fucking hate any time you rewind, or when you have a character break the fourth wall and try and explain shit to me. Oh, yeah. Knock it off. Um, with Funny I'm Games... Adult. I can figure it out. I think Funny Games is the biggest example of Rewind uh, just because he breaks the fourth wall and then they rewind the whole movie. It's It's completely uncharacteristic of the movie, so you don't even see it coming. It's not like it's some kind of crazy, over-the-top film that... If you do a rewind, it might make sense, or you could see it coming in any way. And obviously, like we said, that's the point of Funny Games. He wanted to get a rise out of us and piss us off with that. But I don't know. I I feel like it just (laughs) didn't work. It just infuriated me. I think the, the number one thing that can be said about him is, number one, very polarizing. Oh, yes. Uh, number two, one of the things that I have a problem with is he seems to be, he has like the same themes and the same things that he's trying to work through just over and over and over again. And it's like, holy shit, dude, figure this shit out. <laughs> get your, get your <laughs> get, shit get, together. Yeah. Get your life together and move on. Be happy once in a while. <laughs> I, think, I think that a lot of... The- I don't think that's true. You think you think Cachet and the White Ribbon were about the exact same thing? No, I think he always has a theme of miscommunication, oh. uh, oppression, um, violence, terrorism, and oh, uh, yeah, everything that's sort of. I mean, I think there's a couple of things, and they're all sort of like you said, they're very bleak, they're very dark, and it's like, man, what are you going through? You <laughs> need to see somebody. That's why I'm very interested to see Amour, because what little I read of it, because I don't want to read too much about it, because I want to see it. Same uh, here. Is that what, what little I allowed myself, little peaks, it seems to be 
quite different, very soft compared to his other films. Now, we could be totally blindsided when we do finally well, get our hands on it. But. Well, uh, they, I will. they could rewind the entire movie and slaughter everyone. <laughs> <laughs> Beginning with the nearest parakeet or dog or cat or horse. Or- well, I will say this about Amore. This is uh, rated PG-13. So this is going to be his first oh. film that's actually not rated R. And wow. so there probably isn't too much animal slaughter in that since it is PG-13. So when you look at the rating online it just says there's a there's a some sort of disturbing act. It doesn't say anything about violence or Right. Something happens uh, some kind of attack happens, but Yeah, yeah. but it might be something medical. Medi- yeah, yeah, that's what I thought it might be. That's kind of what I was thinking, but like you too, I haven't read too much more than just seeing the trailer and reading the the synopsis i don't know a lot about it but i've been hearing some great things and i do have to know. say i'm very interested in seeing them more now of the other films that i haven't seen yet uh no, most notably benny's video the castle and the american remake funny games i'm never going to watch them ever i can tell you right now never watching them no interest and there's quite a few of these uh benny's videos available free on youtube and i think that that's is that on snag films i know the castle's on snag films you can yeah, watch I think for benny's free. video is on there because i also watched the seventh continent on snag films yeah so you can watch a lot of his stuff um and we know that code unknown is on netflix streaming uh there's Probably some other ones of his on Netflix streaming as well. And his video is streaming. Yeah. I think uh, Netflix is Code Unknown, Funny Games, and The Piano Teacher. Okay, there you go. So you can get you know, three of his uh, bigger ones there and give them a watch. Because I know that most of you probably haven't seen a lot of these. Because when I started getting into this, I, like I said, I only saw three of them and... Two of them were remakes, so. Oh, I do have to, I didn't, sort of a, like a, a little discovery watching all the Haneke movies. Maurice Benichou, I thoroughly enjoy him as an actor. He's the guy that played Majid, or Hijid, and uh, he was in Code Unknown. He was in Time of the Wolf. He was actually in Emily, which I didn't realize. Until after I saw all the movies. Mm. He's the Algerian actor. He uses him a lot, and of course he uses, uh, I, I can't pronounce his last name, Yorick Mule, Mule, however you pronounce his last name. Sounds good to me. Who's, who's who, that? Who played George in Funny Games and uh, is the protagonist in the castle, and who's brilliant and who gave one of the greatest performances I've ever seen in the lives of others, which I am obsessed with. That is a, yes, mm. great film. And I know exactly who you're talking about. And, and he died, sadly, uh, of stomach cancer at like 50-something. Yeah. Recently. That was uh, one thing. I stand by my opinions on the castle, but I liked him as uh, the protagonist in that film 
And I know that I said that I hate all the Haneke characters, but I kind of wasn't thinking about him. I did like him because he was kind of just a kind of goofy, almost just a goofy (laughs) character. Which, yeah, like I think I said that I hated all the characters, too. But the ones that Maurice Benichu played, I like them, especially in uh, Code Unknown and Time of the Wolf. His characters were the only ones that seemed human. Yeah. Which maybe it's a whole, whole shit. Maybe it's a whole immigrant thing. I don't know, since he's Algerian. <laughs> Plus they play, I mean, that takes a part of the cachet, too. It sort of has that French-Algerian thing going on. Yeah. Yeah. Well, if there's one thing we can say about Haneke, it's that he definitely sparks conversation. I think which that, is what I think he wants to do. I think that he makes everyone think and whether or not you're on board with what he has to say or not, I think that all of his films will result in a lot of good conversation. Yeah. Well, I remember it was on the website somewhere. I think Todd said that he wanted make wanted to make me a, a Haneke convert. <laughs> do you do you feel as though, from what you've heard today, do you feel as though you succeeded? Because this all came about because of you, Todd. <laughs> well, I'm glad that you appreciate the white ribbon and cachet. I there was other ones that I didn't mind too much, like Code <laughs> Unknown. I liked. I think those two are are really his his best uh, films. If I, I mean, I I kind of you know you get attached to a certain director like I have with Haneke and certain others, and then I tell people about them who because most people have never seen a Haneke film, and True. so you know email people and say here's instead of just this film or that film, I say here's a director you should just. You know, he's got 10 films you can you can get. Um, like Von Trier, I'm in that way with him too. David Cronenberg is another one. Um, there's, there's a lot. But, at, you know, uh, directors that people have never heard of and say, you know, you should really watch this person. And I always start with suggesting cachet and then the white ribbon to them. And if they can kind of get those two... Then you work your way through some of the other ones. Because I think those are just both uh, brilliant. I, I don't know, Cachet for me is just, like I said, I, it, it went to number one after, uh, in the middle of the night. Maybe it was just sleep deprivation. but uh, <laughs> I, I certainly think the Cachet was better than the White Ribbon. I was surprised. At, uh, well, I was surprised at how into that. I was until the end, and then I was kind of like, oh, okay, well, there we go. <laughs> there we go. So would you, like, would you like to go the Ryan route and have, like, a boxing match with Michael Haneke? Um, no, I'd probably be afraid that I'd kill him. I mean, because he's uh, never, old. Ne- never mind that he's old. <laughs> oh, never mind that he's old. He's been, he's been drinking... Animal blood for I don't know how long. He has the strength of a panther. He's been slaughtering panthers, tigers, lions, God knows what else for the last 40 years. I think he can handle you. (laughs) No, I wouldn't. I wouldn't want to fight him. I wouldn't punch him in the face as Ryan likes to do with people. (laughs) But um, I think that 
his films for the most part are love him or hate him. And I happen to be in the not liking him too much category. I understand. I respect the man. And I think for the most part, his movies look visually. Uh, The cinematography looks great in most of his films. Uh, Overall, I think that most of his films look very ugly and bland. And I think that the themes in most of them are pretty ugly. And I love dark movies. That's like my thing. I watch 90% of what I watch are like genre films that involve a lot of darkness. But so I don't want to criticize him for being dark, but it's, he's just not my favorite. And not your shade of dark. Yeah. I mean, like Benny's video, for instance, I don't look down on that because of the subject matter. I looked down on it because I thought it was a piece of shit movie. (laughs) Well, that's strong. I didn't think it was a piece of shit. I just wasn't into it too much. Well, I did get a 10 out of 10 out of this. So yeah, there you go. Gave Cachet a 10 out of 10. I'm excited about that. Cachet was, it was amazing. I loved it. Yeah, I, didn't. I, remember, I think I remember that being a strong week, too. I think I had, like, three 10 out of 10s in that you week. You did, yeah. You saw... That was awesome. I can't remember what else you saw, but I remember on the show. It was, the, like, 2001. Something else. Yeah, I remember like on the show you were... Landscape in the Mist or something? I don't know. Mm, I don't think it was that week, but... Oh, maybe it was. I don't know. All right, well, do we have any final thoughts on Haneke? Yeah. Somewhere right now, he's killing an animal. I think that's what we learned. <laughs> He's just he's he's gonna be listening to this podcast, just snapping necks and drinking blood, and just laughing. Well, I will say, even though even though he's not my favorite director, and I don't think I, I don't really like most of his movies, uh, I still implore people listening to check him out. At least watch Cachet and give Funny Games a shot, and give White Ribbon a shot. Because if you watch those three and you like them, you might really enjoy most of his films. Yeah. And again, he's not Roland Emmerich. This is a person that should be watched, not fucking running out to check the new Roland Emmerich movie coming out. Right. (laughs) And I, I really don't want people to think that I just wanted to do this podcast to shit all over Haneke because that's not even though I should because I feel like he shat all over me (laughs) several times Um, I think that just the fact that we're doing this round table this is our first round table and I think just because we're doing this and we picked this director that should at least give him some credibility from our end I mean we're not we're not going to be doing a Roland Emmerich round table (laughs) Uh, <laughs> or a Michael Bay roundtable. Uh, It'd be a short roundtable, I can tell you. <laughs> well, we I, should I do that just once, <laughs> just for fun. Uh, maybe Michael Bay is on Criterion. I mean, come on. Hey, you know what? The guy's I, legit. I've been thinking about something to do for April Fool's Day next year, so maybe, maybe we'll we will be doing something like that. So nice, Michael Bay. All right, well. Uh, I think that pretty much wraps it up. Uh, Todd, yes. thank you for joining us on this Haneke Roundtable. 
Thank you very much. I and appreciate it. We would definitely like to have you back because we are going to be doing a Cronenberg one. That'll be our next one. And uh, we do have Lars von Trier on the horizon as well. I, I, oh, think, we, I think we found our, uh, our round table. Yeah. I think it's us three for now. I think, we have, we, find, I think we have a good dynamic. but Yeah, I think... I don't know if we want to add anyone else to it. Well, I do. I do think it'd be I nice. I don't like people. To, well, <laughs> we, know, we know you don't like people. Well, we could agree on that. I mean, yeah. There we go. That's why I liked him. Doesn't like more misanthropic people. than Wes. I don't know who else would be. Well, I think. Uh, I think it'd be nice to get one more voice in here. So, uh, any of you listening out there, if you are familiar with the work of David Cronenberg and you've seen his filmography, send us an email at feedback at filmpulse.net. Let us know if you'd be interested in joining a roundtable. We'll be recording it probably in uh, the next few weeks. Got to give us some time to see all these movies. He has a pretty big filmography. I think he has, what, 15 films maybe? Oh, Cronenberg? Yeah, he's got a he's got a pretty big list. So 15 or 17 or... Yes. Yeah, I, th- I think I've seen like two. <laughs> Yay! Yeah, so you got your work ahead of you, Kevin. But we'll uh, there'll there'll be some space in between these roundtables, <laughs> probably like a, a month or so. We should contact Hanneke and see if he wants to be a part of it. <laughs> well, maybe when a more comes out, we can. I'll get I'll get in touch with his publicist. See what we can do. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I, I don't know how he is about interviews, but. He doesn't like to speak English in them. I know. I think that would be difficult. <laughs> he, always, he only speaks German, I, I think. I, I'm, I just got this amazing image in my head of trying to explain to Michael Haneke how to set up Skype and call us. <laughs> <laughs> I just have an idea for a short film where it's that, because that's hilarious, and then he gets so frustrated that he slits his dog's throat. <laughs> That's the oh, short film. That's amazing. That's amazing. But it should be a Haneke short film where instead of a short film, it's actually two two hours and like 15 minutes. Thank you again, Todd, for uh, joining us. And we will see you next time. Absolutely. For all the latest film news and reviews, visit us at filmpulse.net. And we want to hear your feedback. Send us an email at feedback at filmpulse.net. Or call our voicemail line at 850-391-6071. Also, please take a minute to rate us on iTunes. We appreciate that very much. Tune in next week when we'll be reviewing Argo and Seven Psychopaths. Until then, my name is Adam for FilmPulse.net, and we will see you Monday.